Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well today. Um, It's a good day here at the church, and I'm happy to be here with you today to be uh, walking through the New Testament scriptures, to see what we can learn from them and glean from them, and to uh, know our Savior better. And uh, if we know Him better, we will uh, be more unified as a church and together um, as well in everything that we share in Him, won't we? So I'm so glad you're able to join us uh, this week. Um, This is the uh, Reading Through the New Testament. This is week nine for the uh, week of February 27. February is about over. And so this is for Sunday, February 27th for the week following, where we will be reading Mark chapter 13 through Luke chapter 1. So beginning Luke chapter 1 at the tail end of the week, uh, right here, though, in Mark 13. We are reading here in Mark's gospel, which is really Peter's, uh, in many ways, we could think about it as Peter's uh, reflections. Um, Of course, we're surmising that, but, um, uh, you know, you kind of get some hints of that throughout the gospel as uh, you see the disciples' ignorance and uh, their understanding of who Jesus is, trying to grasp who he is, uh, why he came, um, all of that, all of that stuff. So we've uh, looked at Jesus as the Son of God, the first half, remember? He's the powerful Son of God. The second half of Mark, he's also the Son of God who is the suffering servant. So the Son of God is both the powerful Christ, but also the suffering uh, servant who comes to lay down his life for us. And we come to that part of Mark's gospel, especially where that suffering aspect is highlighted. And yet it's in that suffering that he shows himself to be supremely powerful in his laying down of his life for our sakes. So what can we learn and what can we summarize Mark chapter 13 through 16? And then we got Luke 1. Well, first of all, in in Mark chapter 13, we have Jesus... uh, outside of the temple, right, and they leave. Um, the, t- the disciples say, look, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, um, predicts the coming destruction of Jerusalem, but also the signs of his coming, um, and um, <clears throat> lets them know that no one knows the day uh, or the hour. Uh, then in chapter 14, verses 1 through 42, we see Jesus, the plot, you know, begins to thicken. Judas is introduced as the betrayer. Um, Jesus is anointed. He has the Passover celebration with his disciples. He institutes the Lord's Supper, and he prays in Gethsemane. Before, at the latter half of chapter 14, in verse 43, his betrayer comes, Judas, who comes with a crowd there. And uh, beginning in 1443 through chapter 15, verse 47, so the rest of chapter 15, we have the arrest, the trial, the suffering, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. Just, just so you remember, as he had been saying all along, I'm going to be arrested, suffer, die, be crucified, but I will raise on the third day. Exactly what he had been telling the disciples all along but they didn't understand it, and uh, we're so often, so often like them, I think, as well, at least I am. 
Um, so <clears throat> the, the arrest, trial, suffering, crucifixion, death, burial of Jesus. And then in Mark chapter 16, we have the resurrection of Jesus. And you'll notice um, at the tail end of Mark chapter 16, if you've got, uh, depending on which Bible you have, which uh, translation you have, you'll notice that those first eight verses um, are found in every single translation that you'll have. But like, for instance, in my translation, which is the ESV, there is a bracket after verse 8, which says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Uh, Verses 9 through 20 were found and are found in the King James translation and um, perhaps other translations. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about that at the very end, um, about just... What are those brackets and, and just stuff like that and, and why those are there? Just a quick note about that. Um, so we've got the resurrection of Jesus, though. He rises from the grave in Mark chapter 16. And then we will go into Luke chapter 1, the beginning of Luke's gospel. Uh, Dr. Luke is going to uh, record for us, record for this Theophilus, the things that have happened. And we'll talk about that more next week. Um, I want to really, you know, dive into what we have here in Mark. And then next week, I really want to kind of, we'll do maybe some more introductory work on Luke um, since there's only the first chapter. But in, in Luke chapter one, obviously, we've got the birth of John the Baptist foretold, birth of Jesus foretold. We have uh, Mary's Magnificat when she praises the Lord. We have the birth of John the Baptist, and we have Zechariah's prophecy. Everything leading up to chapter 2 with the birth of Jesus, a very famous passage that we read often at Christmas time. Uh, those first, especially 20 verses or so with the shepherds and, and all of those verses. So we'll, we'll focus more on, on Luke's gospel next week, maybe give some more introductory stuff and purpose and, and, and such like that. This week, I really still want to focus on Mark's gospel um, as we wrap it up and as we focus upon the uh, tail end of what Mark is trying to teach us in his Uh, written uh, scripture here. So what can we learn from Mark chapter 13 through 16? I'm not really going to talk about Luke 1 this week. Um, We'll have more about Luke uh, next week and the weeks to come. So what can we learn from from Mark's gospel here? Well, uh, first of all, I want to quote from uh, J.C. Ryle uh, here again. Uh, He's got those expository thoughts on the gospels. He was uh, a minister. He lived from 1816 to 1900, a minister in the Church of England, um, his expository thoughts on the Gospels are so good. And so um, here is um, some stuff from, from Ryle here on Mark chapter 14, uh, verses uh, 10 through 16. There you'll notice that um, uh, we have this here in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, and Jesus says, may I want to eat the Passover. Um, Ryle writes this. We ought to mark, secondly, he's of course talked about other stuff in this passage, but this is the second point that he's got, but we ought to mark in this passage the intentional connection between the time of the Jewish Passover and the time of Christ's death. We cannot doubt for a moment that it was not by chance, but by God's providential appointment that our Lord was crucified in the Passover week and on the very day that the Passover lamb was slain. It was meant to draw the attention of the Jewish nation to him as the true Lamb of God. It was meant to bring to their minds the true object and purpose of his death. 
Every sacrifice, no doubt, was intended to point the Jew onward to the one great sacrifice for sin which Christ offered. But none, certainly, was so striking a figure and type of our Lord's sacrifice as the slaying of the Passover lamb. It was preeminently an ordinance which was a schoolmaster unto Christ, Galatians 3.24. Never was there a type so full of meaning in the whole circle of Jewish ceremonies as the Passover was at its original institution. Did the Passover remind the Jew of the marvelous deliverance of his forefathers out of the land of Egypt when God slew the firstborn? No doubt it did, but it was also meant to be a sign to him of the far greater redemption and deliverance from the bondage of sin which was to be brought in by our Lord Jesus Christ. Did the Passover remind the Jew that by the death of an innocent lamb, the families of his forefathers were once exempted from the death of their firstborn? No doubt it did. But it was also meant to teach him the far higher truth, that the death of Christ on the cross was to be the life of the world. Did the Passover remind the Jew that the sprinkling of blood on the doorposts of his forefathers' houses preserved them from the sword of the destroying angel? No doubt it did, but it was also meant to show him the far more important doctrine that Christ's blood sprinkled on man's conscience, cleanses it from all stain of guilt, and makes him safe from the wrath to come. Did the Passover remind the Jew that none of his forefathers were safe from the destroying angel in the night when he slew the firstborn, unless he actually ate of the slain lamb? No doubt it did, but it was meant to guide his mind to the far higher truth that all who would receive benefit from Christ's atonement must actually feed upon him by faith and receive him into their hearts. Let us call these things to mind and weigh them well. We shall then see a peculiar fitness and beauty in the time appointed by God for our Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It happened at the very season when the mind of all Israel was being directed to the deliverance from Egypt and to the events of that wondrous night when it took place. The lamb slain and eaten by every member of the family, the destroying angel, the safety within the blood-sprinkled door, would have been talked over and considered in every Jewish household the very week that our blessed Lord was slain. It would be strange indeed if such a remarkable death as his, at such a time, did not set many minds thinking and open many, many eyes. To what extent we shall never know until the last day. Let it be a rule with us in the reading of our Bibles, J.C. Ryle concludes here, to study the types and ordinances of the Mosaic Law with prayerful attention. They are all full of Christ. The altar, the scapegoat, the daily burnt offering, the day of atonement are all so many signposts pointing to the great sacrifice offered by our Lord on Calvary. Those who neglect to study the Jewish ordinances as dark, dull, and uninteresting parts of the Bible only show their own ignorance and miss great advantages. Those who examine them with Christ as the key to their meaning will find them full of gospel light and comfortable truth. That's the end of Ryle's time there. Um, that is a great section there because it reminds us again of ties helpfully the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, don't miss those parts where Jesus is saying, you know, the sacrifice, the Passover's here, right? Well, why? what was the Passover for the Jews? Well, it was really their Independence Day. It was like their 4th of July. It was the day that they were delivered from Egypt and given their independence from Egypt and made into the people of God and brought to worship him. You know, eventually they would be 
It was the day of independence from Egypt and then their deliverance so that eventually they would be brought to the mount of God to be given his law and to receive his word and to walk in his statutes. And so <clears throat> this would have been a, a day full of meaning for the Jews, but I think it's helpful what Ryle says. It, if it did have meaning for that, but it had an even deeper meaning, not simply for us who look back on it, but it also would have had meaning for the believing Jew who understood, like, uh, you know, we think about Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Caleb, people like that, Aaron. As Aaron slit, uh, you know, as Aaron uh, performed the sacrifices of uh, the, the lambs and, and all of the, 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 it was a very bloody work, wasn't it, that, uh, that, that Aaron, the priest, was called to do. He understood Every single time that he was in the process of, of performing his sacrificial duties, he understood this cannot ultimately take away sin, and I am not the perfect priest to do so. They knew that God had promised a greater sacrifice to come, a greater priest to come, with better promises. They were looking forward to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying they knew all the details. I'm not saying they knew when he was going to be born, what his name was going to be. Uh, I don't think they knew the Roman Empire was going to come around. All of those details, of course, they didn't know, but they did know this. God was going to send a male heir, the seed of the woman, who was going to crush the serpent and all of the damage and destruction and death and sin that he had brought into the world. There was going to be a better Adam, a new man to come of this of the woman who was going to uh, to through a through a great sacrifice or somehow he was going to come about and bring about an atonement and a reconciliation between a holy God and sinners that they did believe in substance and in essence. Again, they may have not known all their particulars, but they did know the heart of the gospel, that we are only saved through the forgiveness and the pardon and the cleansing of our sins because God takes them away through sacrifice. They were trusting in God's grace. And the Passover, the scapegoat, the tabernacle, the, all of the ceremonies were intended to be uh, illustrations to them about the kind of God they had and how their relationship with God could be maintained. And notice it was only through sacrifice, through eating the Passover lamb and and all of that. So very good encouragement, I think, to read the Old Testament. We're reading the New Testament right now, but even as you're reading the New Testament, don't neglect the Old Testament. It is also about Jesus Christ. I think um, if I could steal this from the, the Mormons, uh, the Mormons, right, they, uh, they, they put out the Book of Mormon and they call it another testament of Jesus Christ. And perhaps, in, especially I think in our day and age, and I'm not saying everyone does this, but I think there's kind of a, a general feeling that the New Testament is about Jesus, but the Old Testament is about a, a, a God and just vaguely God. But I would like to almost title the Old Testament another testament of Jesus Christ because both testaments, the New Testament and the Old Testament, are centered and, and uh, fully focused and full of Christ. The pages of Scripture in the Old and the New Testament are drenched in his blood. 
And so as we read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we want to keep that in mind um, because it's all about our Savior and his great love for us. And he shows that great love by the fact that he lays down his life for us. Okay, so let's continue on here. Um, And look here now at Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. Um, A a second part here, this is Peter's denial of Jesus. And this is something that as we read through the New Testament, we see this in the Gospels, don't we? In multiple accounts, how Peter, who is a great example, again, of faith in some ways in the, uh, you know, for Mark chapter 8, shows the, he, uh, Jesus says that, God has revealed to him who Jesus is, what his identity is. Um, And then on the other hand, we see Peter's uh, failures. He's a man of extremes, and that's why we all love Peter so much. And again, I think it's, it's helpful to remember, right, this is probably some influence of Peter through Mark. And um, so let's think about Peter as we as we look here in Mark's gospel. Peter's denial of Christ. Um, Peter's in the courtyard. One of the servant girls come. They see him warming himself. And they say, she says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And, and of course, this happens. He denies his Lord three times before at the very tail end, it says, and he broke down and wept. J.C. Ryle has this to write about Peter's denial of his Lord. A shipwreck is a melancholy sight, even when no lives are lost. It is sad to think of the destruction of property and disappointment of hopes which generally attend it. It is painful to see the suffering and hardship which the ship's crew often have to undergo in their struggle to escape from drowning. Yet no shipwreck is half so melancholy a sight as the black slight, the backsliding and fall of a true Christian. Though raised again by God's mercy and finally saved from hell, he loses much by his fall. Such a sight we have before brought, brought before our minds in the verses we now, have now read. We are there told that most painful and instructive story, how Peter denied his Lord. Let us learn in the first place from these verses how far and how shamefully a great saint may fall. We know that Simon Peter was an eminent apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one who had received special commendation from our Lord's lips after a noble confession of his Messiahship. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He was one who had enjoyed special privileges and had special mercies shown to him. Yet here we see this same Simon Peter so entirely overcome by fear that he actually denies his Lord. He declares that he knows not him whom he had accompanied and lived with for three years. He declares that he knows not him who had healed his own wife's mother, taken him into the Mount of Transfiguration, and saved him from drowning in the Sea of Galilee. And he not only denies his master once, but does it three times. And he not only denies him simply, but does it cursing and swearing. And above all, he does all this in the face of the plainest warnings. And in spite of his own loud protestation that he would do nothing of the kind, but rather die. These things are written to show the church of Christ what human nature is, even in the best of men. They are intended to teach us that even after conversion and renewal of the Holy Spirit, believers are encompassed with infirmity and liable to fall. 
They are meant to impress upon us the immense importance of daily watchfulness, prayerfulness, and humility so long as we are in the body. Let him that thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let us carefully remember that Simon Peter's case does not stand alone. The Word of God contains many other examples of the infirmity of true believers, which we shall do well to observe. The histories of Noah, Abraham, David, Hezekiah will supply us with mournful proof that the infection of sin remains even in the regenerate, and that no man is so strong as to be beyond the danger of falling. Let us not forget this. Let us walk humbly with our God. Happy is the man that fears always. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. Let us learn in the second place from these verses how small a temptation may cause a saint to have a great fall. The beginning of Peter's trial was nothing more than the simple remark of a maid of the high priest. You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. There is nothing to show that these words were spoken with any hostile purpose. For anything we can see, they might fairly mean that this maid remembered that Peter used to be a companion of our Lord. But this simple remark was enough to overthrow the faith of an eminent apostle and to make him begin to deny his master. The chief and foremost of our Lord's chosen disciples is cast down, not by the threats of armed men, but by the saying of one weak woman. There is nothing deeply instructive in there is something deeply instructive in this fact. It ought to teach us that no temptation is too small and trifling to overcome us, except we watch and pray to be held up. If God be for us, we may remove mountains and get the victory over a host of foes. I can do all things, says Paul, through Christ that strengthens me. If God withdraws his grace and leaves us to ourselves, we are like a city without gates and walls, a prey to the first enemy, however weak and contemptible. Let us beware of making light of temptations because they seem little and insignificant. There is nothing little that concerns our souls. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little spark may kindle a great fire. A little leak may sink a great ship. A little provocation may bring out of, from our hearts great corruption and end in bringing our souls into great trouble. J.C. Rowe continues here. So he's talked about um, how far we can fall, um, how small a temptation may cause a saint to have a great fall. And then he says, finally, here, let us learn from these verses that backsliding brings saints into great sorrow. The conclusion of the passage is very affecting. Peter called to mind the words that Jesus said unto him, Before the rooster crows, you shall deny me thrice. Who can pretend to describe the feelings that must have flashed across the apostle's mind? Who can conceive the shame and confusion and self-reproach and bitter remorse which must have overwhelmed his soul? To have fallen so foully, to have fallen so repeatedly, to have fallen in the face of such plain warnings. All these must have been cutting thoughts. The iron must indeed have entered into his soul. There is deep and solemn meaning in the one single expression used about him. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, and he broke down and wept. The experience of Peter is only the experience of all God's servants who have yielded to temptation. Lot and Samson and David and Jehoshaphat in Bible history, Cramner and Jewel in the records of our own English church, have all left evidence, like Peter, that the black backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Proverbs fourteen fourteen. 
Like Peter, they erred grievously. Like Peter, they repented truly. But like Peter, they found that they reaped a bitter harvest in this world. Like Peter, they were freely pardoned and forgiven. But like Peter, they shed many tears. Let us leave the passage with the settled conviction that sin is sure to lead to sorrow and that the way of most holiness is always the way of most happiness. The Lord Jesus has mercifully provided that it shall never profit his servants to walk carelessly and to give way to temptation. If we will turn our backs on him, we shall be sure to smart for it. Though he forgives us, he will make us feel the folly of our, way, of our own ways. Those that follow the Lord most fully shall always follow him most comfortably. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after other gods. Psalm 16, verse 4. That is, a, of course, a very solemn uh, passage of Scripture, a very solemn meditation that J.C. Ryle uh, gives to us, but a very important one, I think. Um, we can be prone to overconfidence like Peter was, and Peter knew from experience. Um, right after, right, he, he professes that Jesus is the Christ. He's put back in line, isn't he, by the Lord. Get behind me, Satan, whenever he tries to rebuke Jesus. Um, and then here, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll die before I do that. I'll bef- and then he denies him three times. And it's not, a, it's not like Peter's being really put under the gun, is it? He's being asked by people who it looks like can't really do him any harm. You know, as we think about Peter, we're reminded just, though, of how frail our lives are and, uh, and such like that. And also the, the nature of temptation, how temptation can really um, get us and lead us astray. We need to fight temptations. We need to fight backsliding and fight to live wholly close to our Lord. We've been going through the class and devoted to God talking about sanctification. And it's so important for us to remember that if we are going to be most happy as Christians, we need to be most holy. The holier we are, the happier we will be. If we wish to be happy, we must pursue holiness and fight sin and temptation in all of its forms, right away, even the smallest amounts. We must not become too confident in ourselves. We should always be confident in our Lord, but never too confident in ourselves, but always confident in Jesus. Okay, so now let's also look here about Mark chapter 15, just a quick section here about uh, the release of Barabbas, the release of Barabbas here. Because we see here, Barabbas was released in Mark chapter 1, 1 through 5, or Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through uh, 15, the release of Barabbas. Uh, They release him, um, they exchange him, the crowd calls for him. And uh, J.C. Ryle has this very helpful section Uh, in in his writings here. He says this, Let us mark finally in these verses what a striking type the release of Barabbas affords of the gospel plan of salvation. The guilty is set free and the innocent is put to death. The great sinner is delivered and the sinless one remains bound. Barabbas is spared and Christ is crucified. We have in this striking fact a vivid emblem of the manner in in which God pardons and justifies the ungodly. He does it because Christ has suffered in their stead, the just for the unjust. They deserve punishment, but a mighty substitute has suffered for them. They deserve eternal death, but a glorious surety has died for them. We are all by nature in the position of Barabbas. We are guilty, wicked, and worthy of condemnation. 
But when we were without hope, Christ the innocent died for the ungodly. And now God, for Christ's sake, can be just and yet the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Let us bless God that we have such a glorious salvation set before us. Our plea must ever be, not that we are deserving of acquittal, but that Christ has died for us. Let us take heed that having so great a salvation, we really make use of it for our own souls. May we never rest until we can say by faith, Christ is mine, I deserve hell, but Christ has died for me, and believing in him, I have a hope of heaven. I think that's a very helpful thing to see that release, that exchange of Barabbas being set free. And we are, in a sense, all of us are Barabbases because Christ is taken by the crowd and by Pilate. We are set free and uh, spared for Christ's sake. Now, now J.C. Ryle has a section here in which he talks about the death of Jesus. And we come here to, as we think about the the great exchange that took place and the the exchange that that is symbolized by Barabbas being released, we see this also in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 38, which, which describe to us the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. And... Uh, J.C. Ryle has some some very helpful things for us as we think about the cross. Because remember, as we've been doing this reading through the New Testament, we've been reminding ourselves that Jesus is the center of the Bible. He's the center, the core, the substance. If we miss everything else, we do not miss Jesus. We must not miss him and his bleeding and his dying and his rising and his ascending for us. Because that is our salvation, what he did for us, and we receive it by faith. So we've been reminding ourselves of that as we've read through the Gospels, as we're now, as, and then when we get to the epistles, we will continue to remind ourselves that this is the core. This is the substance. This is what we must not miss. And so here today, we want to think about the death of Jesus in Mark chapter 15. Ryle, this is again from J.C. Ryle. We have in these verses the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. All deaths are solemn events. Nothing in the whole history of a man is so important as his end. But never was there a death of such solemn import as that which is now before us. In the instant that our Lord drew his last breath, the work of atonement for a world's sin was accomplished. The ransom for sinners was at length paid. The kingdom of heaven was thrown fully open to all believers. All the solid hope that mortal men enjoy about their souls may be traced to the giving up the Spirit on the cross. Let us observe in these verses the visible signs and wonders which accompanied our Lord's death. Mark mentions two in particular which demand our attention. One is the darkening of the sun for the space of three hours. The other is the rending of the veil which divided the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple. Both were miraculous events. Both had no doubt a deep meaning about them. Both were calculated to arrest the attention of the whole multitude assembled at Jerusalem. The darkness would strike even thoughtless Gentiles like Pilate and the Roman soldiers. The rent veil would strike even Annas and Caiaphas and their unbelieving companions. There were probably few houses in Jerusalem that evening in which men would not say, We have heard and seen unusual things today. What did the miraculous darkness mean? It taught the exceeding wickedness of the Jewish nation. They were actually crucifying their own Messiah and slaying their own king. 
The sun himself hid his face at the sight. It taught the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the eyes of God. The Son of God himself must needs be left without the cheering light of day when he became sin for us and carried our transgressions. What did the miraculous rending of the veil mean? It taught the abolition and termination of the whole Jewish law of ceremonies. It taught that the way into the holiest of all was now thrown open to all mankind by Christ's death. It taught that Gentiles, as well as Jews, might now draw near to God with boldness, through Jesus, the one high priest, and that all barriers between man and God were forever cast down. May we never forget the practical lesson of the rent veil. To attempt to revive the Jewish ceremonial in the Church of Christ by returning to altars, sacrifices, and a priesthood is nothing better than closing up again the rent veil and lighting a candle at noonday. May we never forget the practical lesson of the miraculous darkness. It should lead our minds on to that blackness of darkness which is reserved for all obstinate unbelievers. Jude 13. The darkness endured by our blessed surety on the cross was only for three hours. The chains of darkness which shall bind all who reject his atonement and die in sin shall be forevermore. Let us observe secondly, J.C. Rao continues, in these verses how truly and really our Lord Jesus Christ was made a sin for was made a curse for us and bore our sins. We see it strikingly brought out in those marvelous words which he used at the ninth hour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would be useless to pretend to fathom all the depth of meaning which these words contain. They imply an amount of mental suffering such as we are unable to conceive. The agony of some of God's holiest servants has been occasionally very great, under an impression of God's favor being withdrawn from them. What then we, may we suppose was the agony of the holy Son of God when all the sin of all the world was laid upon his head? when he felt himself reckoned guilty, though without sin, when he felt his father's countenance turned away from him. The agony of that season must have been something past understanding. It is a high thing. We cannot attain to a comprehension of it. We may believe it, but we cannot explain and find it out to perfection. One thing, however, is very plain. And that is the impossibility of explaining these words at all, except we receive the doctrine of Christ's atonement and substitution for sinners. To suppose, as some dare to do, that Jesus was nothing more than a man, or that his death was only a great example of self-sacrifice, makes this dying cry of his utterly unintelligible. It makes him appear less patient and calm in a dying hour than many a martyr, or even than some heathen philosophers. One explanation alone is satisfactory. That explanation is the mighty scriptural doctrine of Christ's vicarious sacrifice and substitution for us on the cross. He uttered his dying cry under the heavy pressure of a world's sin laid upon him and imputed to him. Let us observe lastly in these verses that it is possible to be forsaken of God for a time and yet to be loved by him. We need not doubt this when we read our Lord's dying words on the cross. We hear him saying to his father, Why have you forsaken me? And yet addressing him as, My God. We know too that our Lord was only forsaken for a season, and that even when forsaken, he was the beloved son, in whom, both in his suffering and doing, the father was well pleased. 
There is a deep experimental instruction in this, which deserves the notice of all true Christians. No doubt there is a sense in which our Lord's feeling of being forsaken was peculiar to himself, since he was suffering for our sins and not for, our, not for his own. But still, after making this allowance, there remains the great fact that Jesus was for a time forsaken of the Father, and yet for all that was the Father's beloved, and yet for all that was the Father's beloved. As it was with the great head of the church, so it may be in a modified sense with his members. They too, though chosen and beloved of the Father, may sometimes feel God's face turned away from them. They too, sometimes from illness of body, sometimes from peculiar affliction, sometimes from carelessness of walk, sometimes from God's sovereign will to draw them nearer to himself, may be constrained to cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It becomes believers who feel forsaken to learn from our Lord's experience not to give way to despair. No doubt they ought not to be content with their position. They ought to search their own hearts and see whether there is not some secret thing there which causes their consolations to be small. Job 15.11 But let them not write bitter things against themselves and hastily conclude that they are cast off forever or are self-deceivers and have no grace at all. Let them still wait on the Lord and say with Job, Though he slays me, yet will I trust in him. Job 13.15 Let them remember the words of Isaiah and David, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Isaiah 50 verse 10 Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Psalm 42 verse 11. J.C. Ryle there is really helpful, I think, in reminding us of a couple of things so important as he he really helps us to grasp and notice and, and meditate upon passages of Scripture that I think, um, if you're like me, I've grown up reading these passages or hearing these stories since I was an infant. And yet, it's so important for us to meditate even upon the fact that there was darkness and the veil was rent. We've heard those things, but we need to come back to them to meditate upon them because there is meaning in them. There is significance in them. And we don't want to forget that or overlook it or neglect that meaning, do we? We want to um, meditate and grasp and, and really, really try to, to grasp all that God is trying to teach us in these passages about his son. Um, we see the, 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 also the fact that Jesus was made a curse for us. That really is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That is the heart of the the gospel message that we believe. It's the it's the heart of every church that really preaches the gospel is this fact that Jesus is a substitute for our sins. He is other things. He is an example for us. He is a model for us. But he's only an example and a model for us because he is a substitute for us first. And so we don't want to forget that. We don't want to move beyond that. Um, we, we want to, uh, his substitution gives life to all the commands to imitate him and to be like him in, in all the different ways that he is for us. So, and I, and I also really like that fact that he said it is possible to be forsaken of God for a time and yet be loved by him. 
And maybe there's some of you out there that you listen to this and sometimes you feel like God has forsaken you. And you wonder, does he actually love me? Uh, Am I a believer? Uh, What have I done wrong? Why? Uh, Jesus uttered that cry. Why have you forsaken me? Um, Why have you, God, forsaken me? And while we are not the perfect incarnate Son of God, um, if we are in Christ, we also will experience this. We will go through times maybe where we wonder this or we suffer. But we must remember and look to God and preach to ourselves and remind ourselves, uh, just like this psalm, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. We must redirect our gaze, redirect our will, redirect all that we are back to him. And if we do that, it doesn't mean that our circumstances will change right away, but it does mean that our hope is in the Lord. And he will see us through. Okay, so we're now at the tail end of Mark's gospel. And I want to talk to you real quick um, about those little brackets at the end. Okay, so I've got my ESV uh, translation here. And there you'll notice chapter 16 opens up. Um, Mary Magdalene is there going to the tomb. And then we... End of verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then, in my translation, maybe yours says something similar, it says in brackets here, Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And, um, and then they put the rest of 9 through 20 in these brackets. So they give you those verses, at least here in the ESV they do, but they have them in brackets and let you know this is what's happening. Um, now, I think a couple of things. So depending on which kind of Bible you have, uh, you might have brackets, you might not. Uh, if you've got a study Bible, perhaps they're making notes about this. Maybe not. I, I, I don't know. I'm sure... There's any number of, of possibilities of what you've got. Now, why do they have those brackets? Well, those brackets are there to tell us that there is an indication that these verses, 9 through 20, may not actually be part of Mark's original gospel. So, if that's the case, then these verses would not be, would not be we, we would not be confident that they were Scripture inspired, uh, given by God to us. So the question is, is our verses 9 through 20 part of Holy Scripture, inspired and errant and infallible? That is the question. And Christians have differed, and still there is still some you know, difference over whether or not that is true or not. Now, why is this even an issue? Well, it's important to note that whenever you think about the... Um, the Bible we have, right? We have a translation in English, but it, it's translated from the Hebrew and the Aramaic in the Old Testament and the Greek language in the New Testament. Now, it's not like, you know, um, whenever they put the Bible together, it's not like uh, the Apostle Paul was carrying around a full New Testament, right? There were these various manuscripts with various letters or gospels, and eventually they were put together, and the church from an early time, recognized certain uh, pieces of writing 
for instance, the Gospels or some of Paul's letters or, you know, such, they recognized them as Scripture, as on an equal footing with the Old Testament Scriptures. So they recognized them as being authoritative for their lives in a way that other writings are not. So you have early Christian writers writing, um, you know, uh, you know, the guys like Ignatius or Irenaeus or other early Christian writers writing stuff, but they did not regard their writings as scripture. They regarded the writings of the apostles or those who were associated with the apostles as these, these certain writings, these understood writings that we have in the New Testament. They started to recognize these things are scripture on an equal footing, authoritative and inspired by God, just as much as the Old Testament scriptures are, so is Galatians, Ephesians, uh, the Gospel of Mark. All right? Well, we have these different manuscripts, right? But it's, uh, and so like we've got different manuscripts. I should point that out. We have different manuscripts of the, the Greek text, right? And this is how we come and we try to wrestle with all the evidence that we have and we try to see what is the actual text of Scripture? Because sometimes, you know, if you're just simply copying a text, you do this today, right? We, we have spell check on a computer now, but if you're a scribe or you're copying something, you might make a, a mistake with, um, you know, adding a little extra letter or a period or a comma or whatever it might be. Um, and similarly, you'll notice there are some of these, these uh, variations in the text, but they're not major Right, they're they're usually um, just small little uh, incidental mis, you know, mistakes, but they're not mistakes in the in scripture. They're mistakes of people who copied the scripture, right? So that's just important to be reminded of. Um, and without going into too much more detail, it's just important to know that there are actually four different endings that are found at the end of Mark's gospel. So we've got. You know, the short end, we got one ending that, you know, is at the end of verse 8. You've got this ending that we have, verses 9 through 20. But there are actually other endings out there that you could choose from um, that are found in the manuscript evidence that we have. Well, without getting into the details, most scholars today believe that the authentic text of Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. So the majority opinion today... And this even includes, I would say, uh, people who believe in the inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy of Scripture. They would say probably it ends at verse 8. Not everybody. There are definitely solid, smart, um, you know, uh, godly people who disagree with that. This is something that you can disagree about within the Christian church. Um, but there, there's a difference of opinion. But most would say that Mark's gospel ends after or, or ends at verse 8, right? So verse 8 is the end of the uh, authentic gospel that we have. And, and one of the big reasons for this is because the two oldest Greek manuscripts that we have, they contain the shorter ending that we have, this, this, this shorter ending. And another reason is because uh, if you read verses 9 through 20 and then you start to go back and you read those, they sound different, don't they? There are literary differences in the style, the way it's written, things like that. Um, also some odd stuff like holding snakes and drinking poison. Um, 
you know, we, we just don't sure. It sounds a little different from what has come before. So that kind of makes people wonder if this was just kind of added on afterwards. And one possibility, again, this is just simply a theory or a possibility, we have no proof that this happened, is that someone in the early centuries of the church read Mark's gospel, they saw it ends at verse 8, and it seems a little abrupt, right? I mean, there's no great commission passage like we have in Matthew chapter 28, or a passage of go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth in Luke 24. We don't have Jesus ascending like we have, and you know, or we don't even have Jesus actually showing up uh, in Mark chapter 16. We see the empty tomb. We see Jesus has risen. We see the, the women running away. But we don't actually have Jesus standing there um, like we have in the other three Gospels that we have. So it does seem abrupt, if you're ju- especially if you're judging it by the other three Gospels that we have, Matthew, Luke, and, and John. And so potentially someone saw this and said, oh, we need to maybe fill this in a little bit, right? And, um, and it could have been for a good reason, right? Some people may have not trying to be uh, evil or nefarious. They were just trying to give it maybe a more full ending or conclusion to the book. So that is one possibility. We have no, I mean, you don't, can't prove that happened, but that is a possibility um, that, that you could see um, happening. But whatever we make of verses 9 through 20, whatever you and I think about them, and I'm sure that not everybody in our church is going to agree about that, and that's okay. That's okay. Um, we, we don't have to. Um, honestly, no major doctrine has changed. We all believe in the Trinity. We are all trusting in Christ alone. Um, all No doctrine is changed uh, that we would believe uh, uh, by whatever we think uh, based on the evidence about verses 9 through 20. So that's very comforting, isn't it? No major doctrine is changed. The substance of the faith is untouched, the same. Okay, so we might disagree, and that is perfectly fine. Um, that is perfectly fine. Um, but we can know that we're worshiping the same God through the same Christ. However, I, I do want to give you, because uh, one of the things is, is well, it's kind of weird in verse 8. If, if we do take verse 8 as the ending, um, uh, what do we make of that? That's kind of weird, right? Jesus doesn't uh, show up and say, don't be afraid. In fact, what we read here is, and they went out and fled from the tomb, the women, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It Does it leave the, what, you know what I mean? It's just kind of like a weird ending if, you're, if you haven't really... Uh, wrestled with it much right and I think that was that's so true it's kind of abrupt it's kind of like Acts at the tail end of Acts you remember Acts the way Acts ends and we'll read that eventually it ends with Paul in Rome but we don't have any conclusion to what happens with Paul in Rome Paul shows up in Rome and he's under house arrest but we don't learn from Acts what happens to Paul it's kind of like a cliffhanger similarly Peter leaves us with a cliffhanger here what hang on what are you talking about? And maybe that's the point, though. Maybe that is the point. Maybe Peter, and wouldn't that just be the way Mark would do it and with Peter's personality? 
It's kind of a cliffhanger, isn't it? <laughs> um, I don't know. But think about this. Sinclair Ferguson has a commentary on a, a book he wrote uh, called uh, Let's Study Mark, and it's through the banner of truth. And But he wrote this about um, this little section here in verse 8. He says this, Should they not have returned home rejoicing in the news they had heard? Is there not something unexpected about this response? That in itself is a mark of its authenticity. If we were, into, if we were to invent the story, we would not end it in this way. But it is more. In Mark's gospel, this fear is always man's response to the breaking in of the power of God. It is the fear the disciples experienced when Jesus stilled the storm, the fear of the Gerasenes when Jesus delivered legion, the fear of the disciples as they saw Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross. This fear is the response of men and women to Jesus as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. That, I think, is a, you know, if you do accept the ending as verse 8, you can see actually, there's actually a really powerful ending that is possible through this cliffhanger thing. The last word, right, they were filled, they were afraid. That word fear, you can do a word study if you want, actually, of Mark's gospel. And, it, you know, so like Mark, one example is Mark four forty one right after Jesus stills the storm. And we read this, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus rises from the dead. The angel says he's alive and they go away with this fear. And it's almost leaving us with saying, wow, who then is this? that even raises from the dead. And it, it also shows us what, sin, what is also what's powerful is these women who are going to go tell Peter, right? Because um, it says explicitly in verse seven, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. It's almost also like the resurrection, the power of the resurrection sends these women out out to go spread the news about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the news of what has happened. The resurrection fact that it has happened, that the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the powerful Messiah, who was also the suffering servant, has exploded from the grave, and that power, that great fear and astonishment at the majesty of the Son of God has blasted and and compelled these women to go forth to tell the disciples who now in that same resurrection power are being, are being expelled out, thrown out there into the world to share this basic message. And the resurrection power of Mark chapter 16 that expelled these women, sent them running out of awe and fear and reverence for this Son of God is the same reverence and fear that should drive you and me to share this gospel with others around us. Perhaps if we had more of this fear with which verse 8 ends, which is not a fear of, I hope God loves me, or that's not what it's saying. It's that, what does Ferguson say here? It is 
Let me get this again. It is the the response of men and women to Jesus as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. Perhaps if you and I were filled with more of that kind of fear, we would share the gospel more. But it is, notice what fuels it. It's not by digging into ourselves and trying to stir up this fear. It is as we meditate and look at the empty tomb the person of Christ risen from the dead. And that fact, that truth, is the explosive dynamite of the gospel. And we are still feeling the repercussions, the the vibrations from 2,000 years ago are still being felt today as souls are being brought from death to life in this Christ. I think that's... While not conclusive at all, this debate will probably be raging about Mark's ending uh, till the Lord returns. I think that that is, though, a one possible and helpful interpretation if you decide to say that verse 8 is the end um, of, of the gospel. So I really hope that this was helpful today. Um, I hope that it was enjoyable to you. I look forward to beginning uh, more in Luke's gospel next week with you as we read through uh, Luke uh, chapter 2 next week. Let me check my thing here. Week 10, Luke 2 through 6. So we will begin looking at our Lord Jesus again in his life in the gospel gospel of Luke. Uh, Should be a lot of fun. Uh, Thank you for listening. Keep reading. Take care and God bless.